Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times, and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Tom Clark. Tom, how are you doing on this Thursday afternoon? To be honest, Nat, I'm, I'm not great. I'm not great. I'm oh, not going to no lie. Why? I've only just about recovered from the merciless kicking that I took on Monday's show. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've always considered Gregor to be you know, a fair, <laughs> upstanding bloke, but... Absolutely tore me to shreds on Monday's show and failed to mention that I correctly predicted that Sevilla would beat Man United and just <laughs> tore me apart on all my other points. I mean, well. I, I, I've read a lot about his playing days and I've heard a lot about his career and I never knew him to be one who liked an off-the-ball tackle, but apparently oh. I was wrong. Oh, Gregor, would you like a, right, a reply right now? Uh, no, I'm happy to take that. I don't mind a two-footed tackle every now and then. <laughs> Oh, he plays dirty, does our Gregor, every now and then. I consider myself, you know, cleansed a little bit. I feel happier now, so it's fine. We can can proceed as friends again. But but I suppose I should ask you, because obviously you're referring to the previous podcast last week where you were Mm -hmm. on with us, and and you talked about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer perhaps not being the right man to lead Manchester United. They had the semi-final heartbreak against Sevilla, as you pointed out, in the Europa League on, on Sunday. So do you sort of feel a bit vindicated by all of it? Just, just a tad, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not the sort to bring it up again and again and again. And I, I, you know, the next time I'm on with Johnny Northcroft, I won't be mentioning it, and you know, I won't be the first person when Oli Gunnar Solskjaer gets sacked halfway through next season to say I told you so. So I mean, you know, I, 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 I'll be the bigger man on this occasion for the rest of the show. Having lovely. said that a bit now, <laughs> a lovely. You won't play dirty like Gregor. Um, just checking in with you, Gregor. How are you? I'm good. Yes. Um, just. I can't believe fixtures released today and it just feels like uh, one season blends into the next. It's just a kind of constant, never-ending feast of football, which I both love and I'm slightly sort of overwhelmed by at this stage. <laughs> I know, you're absolutely right. But yeah, it's come around quick this new season. Uh, I can't believe in, in just a couple of weeks we'll be talking about the 2020-2021 season and with all of that to come. But... That's for later. Coming up, we're looking ahead to Sunday's Champions League final and talking football giant killings. But we start in North London. Tottenham have completed the signing of goalkeeper Joe Hart on a contract until 2022. Hart successfully underwent a medical this week and will compete with Paolo Gazzaniga for Hugo Lloris's number one spot in Jose Mourinho's squad next season. The 33-year-old became a free agent after his contract came to an end at Burnley at the end of last season in a campaign where he made just three appearances in all competitions in 2019-20. Part of the reason behind the signing is for Mourinho to increase his squad's homegrown quota. Premier League rules stipulate clubs must name no more than 17 overseas players in their squads of 25. And Mourinho was limited to naming just 21 players in his league squad in February, with only four English-bred stars on board. So, Tom, for you, Joe Hart to Tottenham, is that a good move? I think I think so, yes. Um, it depends entirely on how we look at Joe Hart and on what we consider to be a good goalkeeping signing. If we're saying is signing someone with all his experience and Premier League quality a good signing as a number two or even, dare I say, a number three goalkeeper, uh, a good deal, particularly as we consider that he reports suggests he's taken a £15,000 a week pay cut from what he was on at Burnley previously, I would say it is a very good signing. Um, but the, the difficulty is with Joe Hart is that he's one of these players that and we've seen it with the reaction to the signing, he garners so much interest. And it's this kind of, it's almost a curse of being a one-time England number one. 
um, particularly in the time after David Seaman, who obviously had the jersey for so long. Hart had that kind of meteoric rise, so to speak, um, from that great season at Birmingham where he's on loan, then got put into the Manchester City team, then he was in the, you know, he was in the England squad and all of a sudden he was England number one. And I think at, at no point have we ever really assessed, I don't really feel like anyone's ever assessed whether Joe Hart is a world-class goalkeeper, a very good goalkeeper. You just judge him on where he played. So then when he was at Manchester City, everyone just assumes, oh, he's won titles, he's a world-class goalkeeper. I don't really feel, ever feel Joe Hart has been a world-class goalkeeper. I think he's been a very good goalkeeper who has had a very good career. And from that point of view, it's a very, it's a good signing for Tottenham to bring in someone of his experience. But I, I can see why people are quick to jump on the idea that Joe Hart has fallen from grace or things like that because, because of where he was and all the difficulties he's had in difficulties he's had in the last few seasons. I mean, there have been some people, Gregor, that are sort of bemused by this move for Joe Hart. Do you think he should be applauded for joining a top Premier League team? Or does it actually surprise you that he's gone to a team where he isn't guaranteed that number one jersey? I think it's always very difficult for a player who's suffered this kind of fall from grace and that it it was looking very unlikely, or actually clearly impossible, that he was going to get a Premier League team who were willing to sign him as their number one. So in that, that, at that point, you're looking below that, or you're looking abroad again, and you're looking at a kind of a fair old drop in in status and probably earnings as well. So it's very difficult for him, you know, to sign for a club in the Championship, let's say, or you know, try and venture abroad again. You're kind of out of sight and out of mind a little bit. And as Tom said, there there will be there would then again be this kind of sideshow of Joe Hart playing uh, in some kind of obscure league or. Uh, out with the Premier League so I mean for him it's a good move and I think actually for Spurs it is pretty good too you're, you're getting someone who of great experience um, who's still a capable goalkeeper he's had very you know he's had really tough time basically since 2016 um, but you're getting him on a free and on fairly kind of middling earnings for a for a Premier League player these days um, so I think for both both sides, it's it's kind of a convenient um, and sensible move, really. Well, Tottenham have certainly bought a proven Premier League stopper. Hart has won the Premier League twice, the League Cup twice, and won FA Cup during his time at Manchester City and has 75 England caps. However, the 2015-16 season would see Hart's status fall from the heights of 10 saves in a defeat to Barcelona in the Champions League, which saw him singled out for praise by none other than Lionel Messi. To the lows of England's Euro 2016 defeat to Iceland, which saw Hart come in for criticism for his performances in the tournament. 2016 was also the year that Pep Guardiola joined Manchester City and with one of his first decisions took Hart out of the starting lineup. with Guardiola unimpressed by Hart's ability with the ball at his feet. Tom, why do you think he's, he's never really recovered from that, I suppose we could now refer to it as a difficult 2016? Yeah, definitely. It's very difficult. And I, I, th- I, I would say that for me, being a goalkeeper in modern football is the most difficult position in mm. terms of, you know, we talk a lot about narrative around both a team, a coach, a player. I think being a goalkeeper in the spotlight of today with social media, with as soon as something happens on the pitch, on TV, there's a gif going round, you know, people are sharing it and what have you seen this cock up? 
I think being a goalkeeper is the toughest thing because you only need to make one mistake or you only need to have one thing attached to your name and that can basically destroy your career. And Joe Hart was very quickly the guy who was ditched by Pep Guardiola. And it comes back to that point before I was talking about you have, at that point, the most highly regarded coach in the world taking over Manchester City and saying, this guy is not good enough for me. Now, obviously, people decided to then take that and say that was a huge slight on Joe Hart as a goalkeeper in general. I don't think it was. I think it was just Guardiola saying, you're not right for me. And But that doesn't make Joe Hart suddenly a 5 out of 10 goalkeeper. It doesn't make him middle of the road. It, he's still a very good goalkeeper. He's just not what Pep Guardiola wanted and needed. And, and he's been proved right because you would say, looking at Manchester City team, you'd have Edison over Joe Hart all day, every day of the week. Um, so I think that... That, to me, he gets my sympathy for that because... And the same with the England one as well. Yes, the goal he conceded in the Iceland game was, wasn't the best. You know, he got a very weak hand to a shot that he probably should have saved. But let's be honest, it comes back to that point. Again, you've got the, the rest of his teammates. Joe Hart should probably have been able to let two through his legs against Iceland and his teammates should have been able to bail him out. But we all remember that game. England barely managed, to, managed a shot on goal apart from the one they scored very early on. And they looked completely clueless. So again, the, the spotlight then goes on, oh, Joe Hart, what a, what a cock-up, what a nightmare. When actually there's far more, far more factors at play, but the goalkeeper gets singled out every time. And I think mm. in those two instances, they're very different. But they're two things that it's very harsh on him that that became attached to his name and to his career. Well, I mean, that is the problem, isn't it? At the end of the day, Gregor, as, as Tom has alluded to, you know, if a striker makes a mistake, he's, he's got 10 other teammates to help him out. If a defender similarly makes a, a, a mistake, you've got the goalkeeper there to spare some blushes. But a goalkeeper is that last line of defence. And when they may mis- make a mistake, it is highlighted so much more than anybody else. Yep, that's the that's the job of the goalkeeper, I'm afraid, and that's why they're often a bit crazy to to do it. In my my view, um, never thought about being one. <laughs> actually, having said that, I was a goalkeeper uh, as a young, like as a really young kid, and then I changed oh. school, and the the school the team's man- manager was uh, the goalkeeper's dad, so I thought I'm not going to get a game, and I went outfield, and the rest is history. Oh. <laughs> uh, anyway, I've got aside there. I think like heart. Um, I find I find his kind of his temperament is fascinating in that when he was young, um, you know, the kind of he seems like the confident, cocky, um, very talented, and he's you know there's no doubt, and as as Tom said, he's possibly not in the same, he's definitely not in the same category as some of the the, the world's leading goalkeepers, but he was he was outstanding for Manchester City for a long time, um, and then it seemed that as he kind of got older, it's that. The perception of that, at least, changed to becoming kind of, I don't know, like panicky almost. And it, and there was, you know, I remember seeing sort of uh, images of him in the tunnel before those England games in that in the World Cup, and and he looked like he was he was about to have a panic attack. So you know, they're saying the psychology of of uh, Joe Hart has been quite interesting. The way it's changed, I think, and I don't think you can blame, you know, Guardiola alone for this. I think his form was dropping before Guardiola came, and Guardiola saw a specific weakness in his game that he saw was not compatible with the way he plays football. And then from then, it's just been, you know, I think it's probably a cumulative effect. He's he's, he's left the club that he was in, held, held in such high regard at, 
Um, and the moves he's had have not worked out one after another. And, and from there, it's a kind of a slope for him. And I think he really has struggled with it. So, you know, I would hope he he um, he gets an opportunity to play some football and he and he and he can kind of return to some of his best form because mm. you know he has been. There's no doubt he has been a great a great goalkeeper for Manchester City and for England for a number of years. Considering his temperament, then Tom could is this a far stretch perhaps to suggest that Pep Guardiola may have played a part in ruining his career? I think inadvertently, but for once I'm not going to blame Pep Guardiola for something on the game podcast, which is rare for me, I know. <laughs> I, I just I just think that was a, just a, a, a clinical decision by a manager who wanted the best from his team. I, I think I would, I, I'm, I'm interested in um, Gregor's take on the mentality side of it and how you approach it as a player, because if we go back to that moment when Guardiola says, you're not for me, and even I can remember all of us, you know, I was I was a journalist at the time and I was quite surprised. I thought, well, at least he's got his goalkeeper position sorted. And then he says, no, I, I want a new number one. And not only do I want a new number one, you're probably not going to get any games, mate, sorry. Mm-hmm. As a goalkeeper, that then puts you in an incredibly difficult position. Because let's say you're a, a right back, you know, who's maybe coming towards the end of his career. You can move to another club. You're probably gonna. You might come off the bench in the odd game. You might play in a system that's a little bit different. For a goalkeeper, it's you're either in or you're out. And yeah. because of the the idea that we like consistency with our goalkeepers, and you know, again, I'll refer to Gregor on this, who was a defender. You want a reliability, so teams don't chop and change as much. That is that must be so hard as a player to have gone from being number one to then having to go. Do I go to Torino for a year? Do I go to West Ham for a bit? You know, I'd be. I'd, I just want to know how, as a player, you know, Greg has obviously moved around and played for different teams. That must be so difficult to try and work out what my next move is based on how am I going to get a game. Well, look, I mean, uh, it may be a cliche, but I think football, it's always about how you respond from setbacks, whether that's a bad game or whether it's a, a somebody's opinion. And I think probably Hart really didn't have any serious setbacks to respond to until that point. You know, he was on a, as I say, I think his statistics show that he was on a, his form was dipping in the seasons leading up to Guardiola's arrival. But that was a huge, you know, that's a huge blow and it's a very public one. And it's a kind of, uh, I, you know, I've never had to, I've never had to suffer quite as public a kind of, uh, uh, well, I, I suppose your manager, it's, 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 it's calling out and saying you're not, you're not good enough. And the way he responded, it's, he had the opportunities. That's the thing. He had the opportunity at Torino. He had it at West at West Ham, um, and he didn't. He didn't do so. I think, you know, his form. He made he made errors in both both of those moves, and I think people at those clubs also, kind of, probably didn't didn't think that he'd he'd done particularly well in those moves. So um, it's very hard to respond for. But that's as I say. It's I think the kind of psychology of of Joe Hart's career in the last the last five or six years has been pretty pretty fascinating because he was the, he was this kind of young buck that was you know he seemed very confident and always had a spell in his face he's a bit like Dean Henderson now mm. you know you look at him in the field of play and you think he's very confident in his ability and has a bit of swagger uh, and that's what you like to see the young goalkeeper but then that that changed dramatically and now you look at him and you think that he's got some kind of demons in, uh, in his mind and I hope he can can get past that now 
I suppose the final question on this when we talk about uh, Joe Hart's move to Tottenham, Tom, is do you think he really can dislodge Hugo Lloris and become Tottenham's new number one? I, I think it's unlikely. I think he could because I think, again, and this is slightly harsh on Joe Hart with the narrative of, oh, he's going in as the homegrown quota. I mean, that is understandably and clearly is part of the reason for the deal. But then if you look at some of those other goalkeepers, English goalkeepers down the years, you know, Richard Wright was at Manchester City for years, never played a game, was just in there as the third-choice goalkeeper. You know, we all kind of laughed when Lee Grant left Stoke to go to Manchester United, but we all knew why. Rob Green went to Chelsea. Uh, Scott Carson is now at Manchester City, I think. Um, Joe Hart is not not those the same as those players. He he sh- he will be fiercely competitive and wanting to prove a point. Um, and in a way, I kind of hope he does. I hope he at least gets some game time, maybe in the cup competitions, and reminds us all again of what a great goalkeeper he is. Because in you know his time at West Ham, they were obviously fighting up against relegation. Tough decisions had to be made. Again, I go back to that thing. He made one mistake, maybe let one goal in at his near post, and people start going, mm, nah, out of the team. So I, I would really hope that he gets a chance to remind us again what a good goalkeeper he was for all those years. Um, but I'd be very surprised if he um, replaces Hugo Lloris, I've got to say. Now on Sunday, Paris Saint-Germain will take on Bayern Munich at the Estadio de Luz in Lisbon in this season's Champions League final. A first half double from Serge Gnabry helped put Bayern Munich into their first Champions League final since 2013 with a 3-0 win over Lyon. Whilst PSG are through to their first ever Champions League final courtesy of a deserved victory over RB Leipzig. Gregor, are these the two best teams in the final this year, do you think? One of them definitely is Bayern. Um, PSG, I'm slightly, slightly sceptical about still. Look, I mean, there's no doubt that PSG this year look more of a team. And that is that is the thing. There's There's been so much money spent. spent. They've signed so many kind of star players. But they've had a kind of a bit of a, a weak backbone. And they've not really looked like a collective until this season. And I mean, you have to say, if you look back at their, their form in the Champions League, they scored seven goals against Real Madrid over two games. They showed real balls to come back against uh, Dortmund after losing the first leg. I think that was in the last 16 game. You know, again, against Atalanta, late comeback. That was real, you know, showed real character in that. And a very convincing win uh, against Leipzig. So they certainly deserve to be in the final this year. And they have a front three that is really as good as probably anything uh, in Europe. Liverpool might have something to say about that, but it's very close. Um, and Bayern, you know, I think uh, Bayern are, are outstanding. They undoubtedly deserve to be in the final. So Bayern, yes, PSG, they deserve to be in the final. But I would, you know, I think the one thing you'd say if you're looking around at who who's 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 better than them this year, it's not easy because there's a lot of teams in turmoil. Real Madrid aren't what they were. Barca are a shambles. Juventus haven't showed the kind of or Manchester City haven't shown the kind of Character needed to 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 get to the latter stages. Uh, Liverpool, perhaps, but you know they've they, they fell away, so they deserve to be in the final. And and uh, it's got the makings of a very kind of <laughs> high scoring final. So probably be nil nil. <laughs> Great, we look forward to that. Um, but Tom, is PSG against Bayern mouth watering for you? I think I would have liked to have seen Liverpool against Bayern Munich. I think that would have been um, probably the ideal final. I think. Bayern Munich are by far and away the strongest team 
in every sense, both going forward and defensively. The strength in depth of the squad is something that I think you look at with these two teams and say that for all that PSG have got Mbappe and Neymar, when you look at the benches, Bayern Munich is far stronger. Um, but, but I think it could be a good game and I think it'll be really interesting and they're obviously two teams that in terms of our general knowledge of them, we, you know, we know far more as uh, general football fans about the likes of Juventus and Barcelona and Real Madrid and these are two teams that you know will uh, probably teach us a thing or two about their kind of players and their style of play. So from that point of view, if you're one of the uh, football geeks out there like me, who probably w- I wouldn't mind if it was nil-nil. I wouldn't mind it if PSG could do uh, do a bit of a job on Bayern and we saw a bit of a tense nil-nil and a bit of a tactical back and forth. So I- I'm, I'm really excited about it and I think it'll be a really, really entertaining game, even if it is nil-nil. <laughs> <laughs> so who do we make favourites for Sunday's final, Gregor? I'm guessing, but by the way you were talking, you're, you're opting for Bayern Munich. Yeah, I mean, look, Bayern have got some questions at the back in terms of, you know, they play such a high line and if Alfonso Davis, you know, gives himself too much of a, mm. a too much ground to make up when he chases back and he can make up ground than most people, but, um, you know, they're they're dependent on, you know, because they play such a high line, they are dependent on, this, on the pace of, of uh, Davis and one or two other defenders to kind of, to make some pretty... Some pretty long uh, recovery runs, so I think Bayern. Though the amount of goals they've scored, they scored. You know, they've scored seven against Spurs, three and four against Chelsea, eight against Barca. I think in every Champions League game they've scored three or more, apart from two, a two-nil win against Olympiacos. Lewandowski. Uh, I think, I think you'll find that's Lewandowski. <laughs> yeah, Thomas Muller nice said. One. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. Look, and Nabry as well. I think, you know, Leon started really well in that game the other night and had a number of chances to score, which again yeah. showed that, that Bayern did have, you know, do have these weaknesses. Or, there, you know, there will be opportunities. PSG will have opportunities and it's about taking them because the teams that Bayern have faced haven't always done so in in, uh, in Champions League. But we know that Bayern will score and they're so clinical. Like, they just went up the other end and Nabry cutting off the line, smashed one in the top corner. And the trajectory of the game after that was just, you know, completely altered. Uh, so yes, I think, I think Bayern will outscore PSG. So um, I make Bayern favourites. So it's Bayern for you. I know Tom, you're hoping for a tactical nil-nil masterclass. Um, but uh, who would you be edging towards if you had to pick someone you think should and could win this? I think the obvious money is on Bayern Munich. I think PSG will give them the toughest test that they've had in terms of the tactical battle but also alluding to going back to something Gregor said before about them PSG being more of a a team and more of a collective um, you know and cohesive outfit on the pitch they're far more difficult to break down I think in the previous seasons you know and under previous regimes they've had this kind of attitude of let's just spend lots of money and put star players on the pitch and you know we'll see it work I think this is the first season that as well as having the pure class of Di Maria Neymar and Mbappe you've actually got some steel behind them the defence is pretty solid and they've got some um, talent at fullback as well um, they've bought people like Ander Herrera to you know run around the king of just running around and kicking people in midfield um, which is no bad thing even at the highest level um, and I would just say as speaking as someone you know who's had his reputation ripped to shreds in the game <laughs> podcast a, sh- a little shout out for Jose Mourinho when it comes to the Bayern Munich team 
Uh, Ivan Perisic and Jerome Boateng, both in their starting lineups in the uh, semi-final. Both were people that Jose Mourinho wanted to sign, of course, for Manchester United when he was there to con- you know, th- consider that they would have made them stronger. Um, so I, they, Bayern are a very, very strong team in every single position. And I think you'd have to make them favourites. But I wouldn't be surprised if PSG pushed them a lot closer than Barcelona mm. did, that's for sure. Tom, you did say you weren't going to bring that up anymore about being ripped, <laughs> ripped apart. I'm going to be the bigger man. I'm going to be the bigger yeah, man, he said. I, yeah. was just, I, just, I just wanted to defend Jose Mourinho. And I just all right. Anyway, anyway, moving all on. All right, all right. We'll let you off this one time. Thanks. But of course, focusing back onto the Champions League final, a victory in the final would complete PSG's meteoric rise, helped largely by their 2011 takeover by Tamim bin Hamid Al Thani, the ruler of Qatar, who owns the club through state-owned shareholding organisation Qatar Sports Investments, QSI. Now, the takeover instantly made them one of the richest clubs in the world, and since then, spending on transfers has passed the £1 billion mark. Many were quick to point out that PSG starting lineup in their semi-final versus Leipzig cost a whopping £540 million compared to Bayern's £90 million starting eleven versus Lyon. Gregor, can we still enjoy PSG's success knowing it's all down to financial investment? I can enjoy their football. I can enjoy watching Neymar and Mbappe kind of link up so beautifully and some of the skills and and the quality on show, but their success, I certainly no, I, I wouldn't say I'd enjoy it. Um, it's a it's a, a sports washing project. It seems a ridiculous the amount of time I've had to spend speaking about this in the yeah. in the podcast this year. It's it's what Newcastle came very close to being. It's really, although Manchester City fans will probably not like me saying it, it's it's what Manchester City are. It's it's very questionable nation nation states essentially um, buying football clubs to to. Uh, improve their image on the kind of global stage. Um, so, no, I would enjoy their success. Um, and you know, actually, I th- it's funny because it's not funny, but it, it's kind of almost counterproductive at, at moments like this because th- their their place in the final will actually make the kind of the the spotlight fall on on some of their their uh, you know human rights issues and. You know why they still can't answer how many migrant workers have have died um, since 2012 and and constructing the the, the 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 stadiums for the World Cup. So you know the it, it, the purpose will be well. This is this is what they have they've aimed for all the time. They want to become champions of of Europe. So that in one sense they're very close to that. In another sense, I'm sure there will be in the coming days there will be a spotlight falling upon uh, some of the some of the darkness kind of behind this this whole mm. project. Of course, Tom, I know that Manchester City obviously uh, have had their, how should I put it, I don't want to say enemies, but those that don't wish them success because of their newfound wealth. When you think about PSG, is, is some of the sour grapes that are extended towards them because of the fact that people think they have bought their uh, trophies? I think it's you. You've got to split this question off into almost two different parts, I guess, because it, if you're talking about sour grapes in terms of their footballing success, in terms of spending a lot of money in order to be successful, I think mm. it, it's very easy to pocket off the PSGs and the Manchester Cities, one clubs who have had such an extreme uplift in wealth in such a short space of time, 
and say, oh, they've only bought their success. I mean, it, it, that's always been the way in football ever since, you know, the Premier League came in. Blackburn Rovers bought Alan Shearer mm. and, then, and they won the league. Alex Ferguson did it every single season, including in his last one. He went to Arsenal and paid £20 million for Robin Van Persie. He was 29, essentially for one season to finish Premier League top goalscorer. I know it's not on the same level as PSG, but you've got to look at the purpose for the spending as well. Though. Absolutely, that's the, and that's 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 the, that's, uh, that's the second point I was going to come to. If <laughs> if if you're if you're broadening it out and saying what is the purpose for it, and looking at the very dark and very dangerous and very scary side of the PSG investment, then it, it's not sour grapes, but it is well worth highlighting and mm. bringing into the conversation. But I think it's it's slightly unfair to tar the players and the, the on-pitch success. You know, these some of these players are going to win if they won, if they happen to pull off a bit of a shock and beat Bayern Munich. You know, they've won the Champions League and I, there's there's lots and lots of questionable decisions that go on in football and there's lots and lots of powerful people who are linked to top-level football clubs who, if we... It's kind of a, a piece of string. Once you start pulling at it, you could you could get a long way down the list in terms of teams. PSG, you know, are the worst in lots of respects, but I think it would be slightly harsh to lump it all into one conversation, if you like, and say, oh, it's horrible, terrible for the game that they've won. Yeah, also, you, if you quickly, if you kind of, as you, as you pointed out, the, the cost of their squad uh, dwarfs that of, of Bayern Munich's, but there's a, you know, Tuchel would, des- would deserve a huge amount of credit if, if, uh, if PSG were to win, because to be able to kind of, as I say, to form a team out of what was a group of individuals and to harness kind of and engage so many eagles like yeah. <laughs> like that, there's no mean feat. That's no mean feat at all. So, um, you know, I don't think you could, you can't take away from from the achievement that would have, that would have been for these individuals. But yeah. the whole the, the kind of bigger picture is still something, mm. as you say, needs to be highlighted. The bigger picture is very, very murky, undoubtedly. But, it, you know, if you then think about Bayern, it's obviously not on the same, you know, sport-washing level that we're talking about with the links to PSG. But, you know, they've essentially been bullying the German league for yeah. years. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, any top player at anywhere near the highest level in Germany, you can put a decent bit of money on that he's going to end up at Bayern Munich. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, Robert Lewandowski, who himself had two great seasons at Borussia Dortmund, was coming to the end of his contract. Oh, look at that. He's ended up at Bayern Munich on a free. You know, <laughs> Leon Goretzka, who's currently playing in their midfield, came from Schalke, was one of the hottest young talents in Europe in midfield. Oh, look at that. He signed a pre-contract agreement with Bayern Munich. I wouldn't even be half surprised. Erling Haaland, we're so excited about him. Everyone talking about whether he's going to go to Barcelona or Manchester United. Lewandowski's 33 in two years' time. Who are they going to be looking at to replace him? You know, I, it's, it's obviously I am not comparing... Bayern Munich's financial muscle in the Bundesliga to you know some of the things we're talking about in PSG, but I think it's very it's a bit naive to just go Manchester City and PSG are horrendous people and everything behind them is and P- and Bayern Munich and Manchester United are completely pure and innocent and they're all their successes you know nothing bad it comes from their su- success and dominance over the last few years so I think just just a little broader balance I think is needed mm. in the debate. Well, what we do know for certain is that there will be no English or Spanish representative in the Champions League final for the first time since 2013, with neither country even making the semi-finals this season. So do we think there might be a shift in the balance of power in Europe, Gregor? 
Yeah, I think you know. It's, I don't think it's a shift towards France. I think <laughs> I think it's a shift away, slightly away from Spain and towards Germany. You know, there's three of the four uh, head coaches in the semi-finals were German, and it'll be contested between the two Germans in the final. Um, so I think the the shift in power or the kind of the competing powers now in European football are between uh, the Spanish kind of Guardiola, Guardiolista, I think sometimes people call it, sort of style of play, and the German, you know, Jurgen Klopp is the is the sort of leading the, at the forefront of that. And I think, for, you know, much of that is to do with, with pressing. I think which team can... Which kind of the, the two philosophies are? You know, both both are dominating possession, but it's out of possession. It's who can organise and energise uh, the press the best and sustain it. And I think Germany, the kind of German philosophy, um, is is in the lead in that just now. Uh, it's by no means a done thing. I think um, you know both both are, are are dealing with kind of the best best players in the world and it's how they it's how they employ them i think I, that's what I, I think it's i think the, the the kind of shift is towards germany but i don't think it's kind of it's a it's a it's a done thing now i think i think you know the spanish style of play is still hugely successful and and probably will be in the future so you heard him there, Tom, Gregor alluding to the fact that it's, it might not be shifting towards France, but maybe more towards Germany. When you think about PSG and Bayern, do you think these are two sides, though, that will be very much here to stay and, and here to stay at the very top? I think with both sides, what's interesting about this final is that, as Gregor alluded to before with PSG, but this has been the competition they've both been obsessed with for so many seasons. Pre- Partly because, you know, within the domestic side of things, they just dominate their leagues. You know, it's not really this kind of Premier League style where six teams are in it up until March. You know, in in the Bundesliga and in Liga, you know, it's pretty much these two pull away quite early and are going to dominate. That might change over the next coming seasons with Borussia Dortmund and things like that. So I think that that's the first thing to say is that these two teams have been obsessed with this competition for so long and they'll be absolutely delighted to be in the final. Now, I would agree with Gregor that PSG sustainability I'd be unsure about. And what I find fascinating about Germany, and again, it's something we've talked about on the podcast before, it's the overall club ethos and model, not Mm. just on the pitch, but off the pitch. If you look at where, where either both the young players and young talented players from around the world We've seen it with Jude Bellingham, Jaden Sancho. Where are they going to play Germany? When we also look at players like Philippe Coutinho struggling for a bit of form, you know, who who picks them up? I talked about before even Perisic, he's on loan from Inter Milan to Bayern Munich. Um they've got another couple of top stars on loan. They get the best out of them. Jerome Boateng, their centre back, had a season at Manchester City, widely considered not up to it, has ever has since been a mainstay in the defence for Bayern Munich so the the overall recruitment and thinking and planning and building of a club and a structure that we saw as Gregor said in Spain with Barcelona with La Masia with you know keep the ball pass the ball that was you know 10 years ago and now we're seeing the German model take over which Klopp has implemented at Liverpool so I think it's it's again comes back to and we've you know we've obviously talked a lot about Barcelona 
they are now finding that you can't just buy players to fix things. And even if you've got Lionel Messi, that's not enough anymore. You have to have the overall club ethos and structure in place in order to have success on the pitch. Gregor, do you agree? Do you think that the German model is is the way forward and that many should be looking at how successful it has been? Well, as I say, I think I think really it's quite it's quite specific as well. I think you know, Guardiola and Klopp are the two kind of leading, uh, you know, they're they're the, the leading figures of of both of these styles of play, really, and and both have kind of very detailed constructs of attacking football. Um, you know, there there are differences. Obviously, Liverpool are slightly more um, dynamic and kind of they get the ball from back to front quicker often. But the biggest difference between them is what they do without the ball and the way that the way they press and the the kind of the way that they they handle transitions of play. So if they lose the ball, Manchester City's biggest weakness is is a ball over the top that kind of beats their press and they don't have players at the moment who can who are good enough, maybe as good as a Van Dijk or in, or, or uh, a player like that to kind of to deal with with the transition like that. So I think. You know, it's not just about individual players as well. I think that Germany, the German kind of philosophy, is slightly speaking in slightly broad terms there. The way they press is is the best in the world, and pressing has become one of the most important kind of dynamics in modern football. Now we finish this week with a look at a brilliant piece written for the Times by Molly Hudson, from a teenage dream to battling the biggest clubs in Europe, the rise of Glasgow City. Only formed in 1998, they now meet Wolfsburg in the Champions League quarterfinals, thanks largely to Laura Montgomery, who's 44, their former player and now general manager. It is quite the achievement. Glasgow will play their quarterfinal in the Anoeta Stadium in San Sebastian with a capacity of over 39,000. Their usual home is Peters Hill Park, an astroturf with a capacity of 1,000, which has 500 seats, while Wolfsburg play at the AOK Stadion with a capacity of just over 5,000. The difference between the champions of Scotland and some of Europe's superpowers is stark. The likes of Lyon and Wolfsburg are able to offer five- and six-figure deals for many of their players. For Glasgow, every member of the team relies on a day job or university to fit around their training schedule. Gregor, this is quite remarkable. It is incredible that Glasgow City have made the Champions League quarterfinals, isn't it? Amazing story. Really is amazing. Um it's just it's just in the kind of in modern football this kind of thing doesn't happen <laughs> at all <laughs> least anymore. And it's a story that I really I didn't know a great deal about and and uh, read it. It's a brilliant piece by Molly. I would advise anyone to go and read it if they haven't already. Um and the kind of thing it, it makes you realise is that there's still kind of huge great power in in just the the will of 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 people to kind of to build something at a level like this and it kind of there's probably some comparisons to Doncaster Bells down south in England you know they've dominated women's football for a long time um and the kind of the way that the that that the women's game has grown and developed and become there's been more and more money put into it it's um they've kind of they're their standing has fallen away a bit, and that's not really happened in in Scotland yet. So, you know, Glasgow City are still 
are still at the forefront of Scottish football. And you know, it's it's not good that there's not been the same level of investment in women's football in Scotland. Um, and I think you know probably that's beginning to change, but. It's a remarkable story, and for for these girls that are you know all, you know part time and and training in the evenings uh, to be coming up against people who are professional and earning earning you know big big money and playing for big clubs of, of huge stature, uh, it's, it would be a fairy tale if they were to progress any further. Oh, it certainly would be that. But uh, Tom, the story of Glasgow City is is perhaps only familiar to those within the the women's game. Um, I know that we all talked about it before we came together on this podcast and a few of us were like, oh, I hadn't really heard of Glasgow City. Um, When you think about the women's game, do you think that the men's side of things could do more in Scotland to promote women's football? Absolutely. I think it's almost the more I've, you know, been uh, fascinated by this story once I just the first time I discussed it with Molly, the more I've kind of realised how sad it is almost as as great a story as it is and you know the efforts of laura montgomery and all the other people when you read the story you know Mm. she was 18 uh, and struggling with a bad knee injury and she just decided there's not enough opportunity here i'm going to do something about it when you think about it from the flip side it's almost sad that that had to happen that you know you have celtic and rangers are two names that resonate throughout world football never mind in the uk and the fact that only now in the last few seasons are they doing anything about promoting the women's game, offering better funding to their teams. It, it's, it's almost a shame because what I fear might happen now is that Glasgow City will almost be overtaken and you know maybe consumed by these two great names that are, 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 in, this, are in the same country. Um, so I think there's a lot to be done and let's be honest there's a lot to be done not just in Scotland but uh, across the UK Mm. in terms of promoting the women's game what I would hope of course is that you know all of Scotland are going to watch the game tomorrow night I believe it's on BBC in Scotland Um, I would hope lots of football fans are getting behind it because we all love a giant killing and I can tell you that this would certainly be a pretty big giant (laughs) killing if they managed to beat Wolfsburg I mean only a few years ago Glasgow had to play one of their actual league games which was going towards them winning the title that year on a public park because they couldn't get any other facilities in order to play the game. So, I mean, it's an amazing story. And as Gregor said, it's a, it's a triumph of um, the human spirit and uh, deter- <laughs> determination to make things happen. And uh, I, I wish them all the very best. It's superb. Oh, we all do. We all certainly do. And it will be actually Scott Booth who will be in charge of Glasgow City against Wolfsburg. As a retired footballer, Booth was part of a BBC commentary team on men's football and was asked if he would co-commentate on the Women's Champions League in 2014-15, the last time that Glasgow made the quarter-final stage against Paris Saint-Germain. He felt as though he was asked almost apologetically, as though it would be demeaning to commentate on women's football. He enjoyed the experience despite Glasgow's 7-0 aggregate loss and three months later the Glasgow job became available. Now Booth had managed previously Stenhouse Muir a semi-professional men's team in 2014 and found that balancing work and football takes the ambition away but he was immediately surprised at the application of the Glasgow players although that in itself posed selection difficulties. He said I was really surprised by how committed the players were how they were working or were at university and still give up four nights a week plus a Sunday to play. 
Increased investment by Celtic and Rangers has meant the gap is closing domestically from their rivals, and Booth concedes he is 100% aware of the difficulties that are likely to arise in the future as the need for infrastructure and financial support only increases. Against Wolfsburg, Glasgow City will be hoping for a footballing miracle. Perhaps they might find the kind of mindset Montgomery had of 22 years ago, that of a determined teenager, as Tom was telling us, desperate to change the face of Scottish women's football. So should Glasgow City do it, there is no doubt it would be one of football's all-time great giant-killing moments. And that kind of got us thinking about, well, those kind of amazing moments that we have enjoyed over the years, those kind of upsets and giant-killing moments. So, Tom, let's come to you. What's your standout moment? I thought a lot about this, and I I cannot (laughs) think of one that would be anywhere near as good as Glasgow winning. No, it's uh, impossible. (laughs) Honestly, I I cannot encourage you enough to go and look into the story of Glasgow City before tomorrow night and really tune in because it would be incredible if they pulled this off. But having said that, uh, there are two that spring to mind and I'm going to resist the uh, temptation to mention a team that normally play in red and white and had a great run in the FA Cup uh, a few years ago uh, and when in non-league. just failed in that, res- in that resist. Not, I haven't mentioned them by I name. I can't remember Brentford doing that well, but anyway. Uh, no one knows who I'm talking about. Lincoln beat Burnley 1-0. Um, but uh, I've, the two I've chosen are Wigan beating Manchester City in the FA Cup final in 2013. Um this is me being a little bit soft because of obviously how difficult Wigan have had things lately. Um, and obviously that season they, they were relegated from the Premier League, but that was such a glorious moment. You know, that one afternoon, uh, Ben Watson heading in that late winner. I think it was just, I, I can't think of many fans, apart from anyone who had had a bet on Man City uh, or City <laughs> fans themselves who weren't absolutely delighted to see Wigan win. And the other one that always springs to mind for me was when uh, the 2002 World Cup the 98 World Cup was the first one for me that that's the first World Cup I really remember watching every single game so when the next one came around I was so excited I remember trying, you know, looking at the fixtures um, and I remember sitting down to watch it must have been the daft hours or something like that but <laughs> Senegal to play France and you know you, in my head France were this great team they'd won Euro 2000 they'd been brilliant at the 98 World Cup of course and you know this team of brilliant players and this you know, people I'd never heard of, uh, who then became to be household names: El Hadjouf, Papa Boubidiop, and and they were they were full value for the win against France as well. That was what was great about it. I think sometimes in these giant killing moments, someone scores from a corner and then they're desperately hanging on for seventy minutes. I remember watching that game and thinking how brilliant Senegal were, and that was what was so great about it. They it then became you know they were one of the great stories of that world cup they went on to reach the quarterfinals and obviously mm. france france were dumped out at the group stage so that's one that always sticks in my memory as such a joyous a joyous giant <laughs> killing um rather than one that was kind of fraught in nerves and things like that it was it was it was a brilliant watch that one i mean it was when you think back to that game because i think it was the first game of that group a i think it was that you're mm. referring to as well I and think so it might have been yeah and so when you're kicking off a campaign and, and fully expecting France to win and it all goes badly for them, but all goes so well for Senegal. Mm. And, I think, and France didn't win a single game uh, no, in, were, in their... awful. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see how that one stands out for you as well. Although you rightly pointed out Wigan. I mean, that was a tremendous, tremendous FA Cup final for them. Yep. So, Gregor, where do you stand on, on your best moment? I mean, it, one that stands out for me and it's not... For a joyous reason, it's the opposite, and that it involved Celtic. Um, was when they played Inverness Caledonian Thistle 
in the Scottish Cup ah. 20 years ago now, and it prompted probably the best The best headline, headline. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Go Super on. Cali, go ballistic, <laughs> Celtic are atrocious. Are atrocious. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And it cost it cost John Barnes his his job. He was the Celtic manager at the time. He'd come promising sexy football and played four two 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 like Brazil, and it was a disaster from start to finish. And I just remember it was a horrible night. And uh, but you know, for Cali, it was that was kind of the moment they arrived in Scottish football. I think a few years later they they were promoted to the top flight. You know, it's really kind of a team in the Highlands playing. You know really really small team defeating the mighty Celtic in the Scottish Cup it's, it's unheard of you don't those things don't really happen in Scottish football and it was thoroughly deserved they won 3-1 and uh, yes that headline you know will make it go down in, in uh, Scottish football in history so that's probably the biggest shock I can remember although I wasn't happy about it at the time Gregor has <laughs> any you've ever been involved in on the pitch or any yes. moments you can remember that might help give some advice to uh, Glasgow City for tomorrow night what, what playing in? Uh, I'm not sure I've had any big. I'm not trying to make a dig that you never made it to the Champions League. No. <laughs> I just mean as to whether you've ever come up against a team far stronger than you and you managed to pull off a surprising result. Do you know, honestly, every t- you know every year we 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 talk about the cup competitions come round and you know you or another editor go any you know any any shocks and I think my cup competition history in football was really shocking. We played Spurs once when I was at Forest and took them to a replay. That was about the best I did in a competition. We, I was on the end of a really a pretty bad shock when I played for, um, I mean, I say it's a shock, but I played for, when I played for Chesterfield, we played a team called Droylston, who were uh, two or three leagues below us. And we, we played them, I think we played them f- three or four times. It was like, the first one was called off by fog, because of fog. It was abandoned mm-hmm. at half-time. The second one, we were winning, and the floodlights mysteriously went out on seventy minutes. Ooh, um, and interesting. They're, they're, yes, and their mm-hmm. their uh, chairman and manager was a was a bit of a character as well. So there were some questions about that. And then we had to go <laughs> back a third time for the replay, and we lost. <gasps> and then the next morning, um, we woke up to find that the guy who'd scored both goals, and I think he played for Lincoln eventually, Newton, the left back, Tom. No, yeah, he Sean, wasn't Sean ineligible. Newton. Yes, he was ineligible. No, so we, went <laughs> we went through. Yeah, it was the biggest what? kind of odyssey in of cup football that I've ever been involved in. But it was bizarre. it was a, a shock almost on the cards there. Oh, almost a shock. Well, actually, when you go back to that game itself, they win. They must be going balmy because oh. it's an, an amazing victory for them. How are you feeling to actually be the victim of a giant killing at, at, in relative terms? Yeah, huge, I mean, it's hugely embarrassing. You just want to get off the pitch and out the out the stadium as quick as possible. I mean, I have yeah, I've been in a, on the end of a few defeats and cup competitions that are, you know are pretty embarrassing. So you know, it will be some. The fact that it's a one-off game too for Wolfsburg, it's kind of I don't know. You could see that. Possibly being, you know, a game where if, if they can defend well, if Glasgow can defend well and uh, and nick a goal, it could be very nervous. So, you know, the fact that so they've only got ninety minutes to get to get over to get beyond uh, Glasgow Wolfsburg, then it's going to be it's going to be a tricky one for them. 
Well, certainly will. And we do wish Glasgow City all the very best then for that tie. And that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Tom. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information.